Today we're going to be talking a little about renovation and transformation, and we're also going to be talking about abstraction. And those seem like two different things, but let me make sense of, of how they're uh, related. We're getting work done in our house right now. We live in about a 60-year-old house um, over near the hospital. And uh, last uh, spring, my wife asked me to go trim one of our trees. We have a tree that was really close to the house, and it was getting a little unruly. And, and so she goes, well, you go trim the tree. And then I'm like, you know, super husband. And so what I did is I went and I trimmed the tree at the base um, and took the whole tree down. So I like walked out in the front yard holding this en- entire tree, thinking I was the greatest human being ever. And she would be so proud of me. And she was like, you idiot. You t-. I said, trim the tree, don't cut the tree down. Well, the reason she was upset is not because it was some prized tree, but when I took the tree down, uh, you looked at the side of the house and the siding where the tree had been blown by the wind over the last however many years, the siding was like, uh, the paint was gone. And so there was this like really cool archway of black on our white siding. And that exposed to us that we had uh, original aluminum siding that when you ran your finger across the house, you got all the white dusty paint with it. And, And so it came known to us that we needed to do a little bit of renovation. And so we started getting quotes on painting our house. Painting a house uh, is insanely expensive. And uh, so we were just like, I guess we have to bite the bullet and paint this whole house. And then somebody came up to us, a contractor, who said, actually, for that amount of money, you can just get new siding. And we went, done. It's even better. Never have to paint it again. We get all new stuff. It's going to look brand new. It'll be beautiful. So we go through the process. These guys are at our house. They basically moved in. They've been here since um, July. And, and they, they do the work in order to put new siding on. You know, you don't like when you put new clothes on in the morning, you don't just put them on over whatever you wore to bed. You, you have to take something off to put it on. So they take off all the old siding, which reveals the ugliest house in the world because underneath the old siding is this old black tar board or old Tyvek paper. You know that when you drive by a new construction and there's like white paper that has words all over it and it's kind of like a moisture sealant kind of thing. Problem is this. Um, I don't know if you'd heard there's like a global pandemic. And what that does is the global supply chains have been kind of wonky. And so they got enough uh, siding to kind of do like the back of our house, but the whole front and side of our house that is seen from the street, they didn't have enough siding and it was backordered and all this stuff. And so people in the, in the neighborhood just started calling our house the Tyvek house because it was just white paper with big words on it. And it looked like maybe we sold off the siding to pay some bills or, you know, who knows. Um, we had been robbed and they just took the siding and and the gutters. It was, it was pretty embarrassing. Uh, it's pretty funny. We laughed for a while. We were like, oh, it's a Tyvek house. Our neighbors were like, yeah, that's funny, but seriously, are you actually going to, because this is, the property values are plummeting, and you need to help this. What's my point? My point is it got really ugly before it got pretty again. Now people drive by, it and it's done, and they go, wow, you look like you've got a brand new house, and we go, exactly. And so what Jesus is doing throughout the course of this uh, journey that we're walking with him and you can go back and listen to previous messages. You uh, can hang in with us as we kind of, we're going to go real slow and just walk with Jesus. What he's doing is he's actually tearing down the facade of religion and the facade of each of our lives. He's tearing down the outside thing that we put up to show the world. And he's going, yeah, 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 but what's under that? And if you'll let me tear you down, Jesus is essentially saying, if you'll let me take off all the outside stuff, I can make you brand new. And it's this beautiful word picture that I want to give you as we, as we dig into what he's going to do with us today. And what he's doing today is dealing with an abstracted world, an abstracted world. Eugene Peterson says this. He says, when any part of life is abstracted from the particular, formulated into generalizations or bureaucratized into just a project or reduced to a cause, life itself is killed. 
let me explain it this way. We live, like I said, near the hospital. The hospital, as an abstraction, is a really busy office building with lots of noise. There's sirens and helicopters, there's traffic, there's people coming in and out all day, and not like healthy people, but sick people. So as an abstraction, the hospital is a really aggravating neighbor. But personalized, when you take it out of the abstraction, you make it personal. My wife was in the hospital twice this summer. And when my wife is in the hospital, I'm thrilled that it's right there. I'm thrilled that they have all this noise and the people are coming. When my friend has a heart attack, I'm thrilled that there is a helicopter to take him from this hospital to a better hospital, to take him from his house in the ambulance to the... I love the noise. I'm glad for the chaos. I'm thrilled that there's all these opportunities. Why? Well, because abstracted, it's just a noisy neighbor, but personalized, it has deep meaning and purpose. When I moved to South Africa almost 20 years ago, there were thousands of people dying every day in the city I lived in from AIDS. HIV AIDS was a terrible epidemic. There really wasn't much to do for it yet. And I showed up and it was almost a sad shrug for me because I I didn't know these people. I was really sad for them. The lines outside of the hospitals were were heartbreaking. But what am I going to do? Not long after that, I met a woman named Beauty. She was diagnosed with AIDS. And it started to click. Is, is AIDS wasn't a generalized thing that was happening to people. It was something I now could relate to. And so we would fight for this woman, care for her children. Steph, my wife, got thrown out of multiple hospitals for fighting for medication and care in a corrupt system. And it became deeply personal for us. And so what could have been um, abstracted? AIDS is a problem people are starving, is different when you know someone. It's different when it becomes personalized. A few weeks ago, we talked about Jesus' first parable along the road to Jerusalem, and, and the teacher of the law said, who's my neighbor? And Jesus tells this elaborate story, the Good Samaritan story. And he says, my neighbor is anybody that I'm near. My neighbor is whoever needs mercy. My neighbor is whoever needs justice. The Samaritan was the neighbor which breaks all sorts of conventions because, like I said, the Jews and the Samaritans were not friends. And and so this great generalization that the Samaritans are bad people and the Jews are good people, he breaks it by personalizing it in a different way. Samaritan was an abstraction, now it had become personal. But an abstraction, like Methodist or Presbyterian, like Democrat or Republican, like black person or white person, it's an abstraction. Until you humanize that one, until you find the person who represents that and you know them one-on-one, it's just an abstraction. College student, old person. How's that feel? Abstraction is a trick of language that dehumanizes people. It puts them into categories and allows us to think without being thoughtful and consider without being considerate. Abstraction takes real human souls and puts them into categories that makes it easier for us to ignore them gives us distance, allows us to say those people, they, them. So only when the Samaritan was made individual and human could he become a neighbor to the Jew. And so what does this have to do with God? Whether we like it or not, God is often reduced to an abstraction in our world. God is reduced to a spiritual principle, a set of rules and regulations, a religious idea, an ethical cause, a mystical feeling. God is abstracted. And so if you ask the average person, who is God? 
The answer is usually some sort of list of rules or some vague description of feeling. God is um, he's lo- love. Or God is those Ten Commandments that we have to do. God is either relegated to rules and regulations or to a flush of feelings, and the reality is he's neither. And so how do we know that? Where, where did that happen? Where did this, this abstracted God become the real God? And that's, that's where Jesus enters the picture. Jesus comes into the picture, and Jesus has a name. Now, we conflate Jesus and God, and that's the whole Trinity talking that's true. And yet Jesus shows up to remove the abstraction of God. He's personal. He's relational. He has a name. He has parents. He has siblings. He eats bread and fish and drinks water and wine. Jesus shows up and he is in the business of repersonalizing faith. What had become pharisaical, a system of rules and regulations of, of really what was karma repackaged as faith. Jesus says, that's not it. I'm it. And I'm personal. No more abstraction. No more God as an idea or a force or a dogma. And so, so we zoom into this part of the story that we're going to focus on today, and we find Jesus praying. And as he finishes praying, his, his, his followers, his friends, Jesus was a person with friends. They say, how do you do that? Can you teach us to do it? And what they're asking for is, hey, can you teach us to remove the abstraction from God and how to relate to God? Read with me in Luke chapter 11. Scripture says, one day he was praying in a certain place. And when he finished, one of his disciples said, Master, teach us to pray just as John taught his disciples. So he said, well, when you pray, say this. Say, Father, reveal who you are. Set the world right. Keep us alive with three square meals. Keep us forgiven with you and forgiving others. Keep us safe from ourselves and the devil. And then he said this. Jesus said, imagine what would happen if you went to a friend in the middle of the night and you said, friend, lend me three loaves of bread. An old friend traveling through just showed up and I don't have a thing on hand. And the friend answers from his bed, don't bother me. The door's locked. My children are down for the night. I can't get up and give you anything. Jesus says, but let me tell you this. Even if he won't get up because he's a friend, if you stand your ground knocking and and waking all the neighbors, he'll finally get up and give you whatever you need. Here's what I'm saying, Jesus says. Ask, and you'll get. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be open. But don't bargain with God. Be direct. Ask for what you need. This is not a cat and mouse hide-and-seek game we're in. If your little boy asks you for a serving of fish, do you scare him with a live snake on his plate? If your little girl asks for an egg, do you trick her with a spider? As bad as you are, you wouldn't think of such a thing. You're at least decent to your own children. And don't you think the Father who conceived you in love will give you the Holy Spirit when you ask him? So what we have here is the disciples asking, how do we pray? And Jesus responds with what's commonly known as the Lord's Prayer. We didn't read it in the version you're used to reading it because I wanted to get out of the familiarity. Familiarity has a tend to abstract things as well. We can start looking past them when they become familiar. And so what you might know as the Lord's Prayer Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come. You know it in that language, but this is different language. This is is language that is not so familiar, and so we have to look back into the words and go, what is he really saying? How do we break out of the religious, ritualistic language and understand what's being taught here? 
Eugene Peterson makes mention that this is the only time, the only time that the disciples ask explicitly to be taught something. You can flip through your scriptures, flip through the Bible. This is the only time the disciples say, teach us, explicitly teach us how to do a thing. Notice they don't ask for better behavior or the power of better habits. They don't ask for leadership training or ethical mantras. They don't look for seminary theology or strategic planning. The disciples, when they have their chance to ask to, do, to be trained in something, they say, train us how to relate. The people closest to the living God intuitively knew that God was not a system of rules anymore that he was living and breathing, that he was personal and approachable. He was no longer abstract. And so they say, Jesus, help us relate the way we see you relate. Teach us to pray. They got a 20-second prayer. So much more than they bargained for. But you go, if you went to Jesus, imagine you could have access in this moment that Jesus walks in the room and you go, teach me to pray. And you're waiting for like a semester-long deep dive course. I'm going to learn all the mechanics. I'm going to figure it out. I'll have all the tricks. He's going to teach me to pray. And in 20 seconds, he's done, and he goes, how's that? Let me tell you a story. And then he tells this story, this strange story about a friend knocking on the door about a father who gives his children good gifts. Think what what I started thinking about when I I was considering how quick Jesus was with this is I was thinking about people in their vegetable gardens which seems like a totally normal thing to think about. That prayer, prayer is like growing vegetables in a world where perfect produce is two minutes away at Kroger. For really cheap, actually. Like, think about how much it costs in time and energy and expense to grow a, a zucchini or a cucumber, to grow a peach or an apple. When you could take a three-minute drive and, and you could have a whole barrel full of them. If you explain to somebody in 1800 what the Kroger produce section looked like, they would die of shock. We live in a really strange time where food from all over the world is flown in and shined up, and as soon as they run out, they got buckets of it in the back at a big refrigerator, and they just wheel more out. Why would you grow your own? Why would you grow your own food? If Kroger is there and they have all the food you could ever imagine, and it's actually cheaper if you factor in all the time and expense and care. It's like if the disciples said, hey, Jesus, tell us where the zucchini is. And then what they expected was for him to point to Kroger and be like, it's right by the other squashes. You could just pick as many as you want. And what he did instead was he went a whole different direction. See, groceries are purchased commodities. It's money exchanged for life-sustaining nutrients. It's an exchange. Groceries, the produce section, is religion. You follow the rules and you get the desired result. You bring the right offering and you get the life-sustaining thing. So next time you go shopping and you walk into your Kroger or your Aldi or your Costco or your Meijer, who did I leave out? Walmart, got them all. Whole Foods, Trader Joe's, how far do you go? I get all my stuff delivered from Amazon. Okay, fine. Next time you go into a produce section, I want you to think this is the religion section. I just want you to think that. This is the religion section. This is where I exchange my thing, my ritual, my offering, and they give me life. The produce section is now the religion section. Gardens are something totally different. Why? When you grow something, you have to relate to it. 
People with backyard gardens, people with a couple peach trees, people with tomatoes. We lost all of our tomatoes this year because a horned worm, it's like the same, it's like the size of this finger, but it has two red horns on the tip of it, and it's the exact same color as the tomato plant. This horned worm had implanted itself last year as some sort of pupa, the word of pupa, biology majors, get me. And, and it like burst out of its um, chrysalis, and now it's like this other thing, and I don't know, it's a worm. But it becomes a moth. So it's a moth, and then it becomes a worm, and it's a whole thing. Butterflies, you'll get it. But it ate all of our tomatoes. In one night, it ate every leaf and every fruit. And so we just had two little, like, green stalks sitting up. And I was horrified. Because we'd been nursing these stupid tomatoes <laughs> for, like, three months. And it gets too cold. So we're like, i got to bring in the tomatoes because it's getting a little too cold. And, it could be. And, and now it's like, it's perfect. We saw the fruit coming, and these two stupid worms slash moths in some form of their development ate everything. Oh, I receive your pity. Bring me all of your tomatoes. Um, when you have things that you're growing, you learn to love them and you care for them and you weed around them and you, you, you take care of the insects and you, you make sure you get rid of the threats you prune and you cultivate. You learn the soil. It needs more salinity. It needs more alkalinity. It needs, what does it need? Gardening is a relationship. The grocery store is religion. Gardening is a relationship. You have to learn and grow together. You become one and, and you, you kind of work for this together. But you can't do it all. I can't make the tomato grow. Something else makes the tomato grow. I do my part, but, but the food is provided when the food is provided. The grocery store is religion. Back to Jesus. Look how he personalizes the abstraction. God is not unreachable or distant. He is Father. He says, when you pray, pray like this, Father. In the parable that he tells right after that, what's the relationship? It's friend. When you go and you knock on the door to your friend. So, so Jesus has taken abstracted vending machine God of the old ritual world, and he's created Father and friend. The parable starts with a tale between two friends. Indifference is gone because if your friend knocks at your door, you eventually learn to answer it. Because prayers are not bargain bins of squash and lettuce. They are homegrown tomatoes and zucchini and cucumbers, and they are different because there is love there. It's personal. We would all understand if a stranger refused us in the middle of the night. Knock on a stranger's door, and they don't answer it, you kind of get it. You can't blame them. But if your friend cries out, if your friend is, is slamming on your door, there's something in you that won't allow you to reject them. It's a profound difference from one to the next. It's not distant and abstracted and impersonal. It's deeply relational and deeply personal. Imagine if you had a friend who only called you in fits of emotional crisis or right before they ate. Imagine if you had a friend who only called you when they were in terrible crisis or right before a meal and then it was really short and they said the same thing every time. One, you would block that number. Two, if you're thinking of that friend or sitting near them, don't point. Just, do you have the friend who only calls in deep crisis? I really need this. I really need this. You wouldn't believe this. I got to tell you this. Can you help me fix this? Or, thank you so much for the food you've given us. Something, something, nourishment, my body's amen. That's what most people think prayer is. Most people participate in prayer in that way. But you would never relate to another human being that way and expect that they would have a real relationship. You wouldn't call that person your friend. That's, that's like... Do you either call 911 or you call somebody and tell them what you're having for dinner? Those aren't friends. Jesus has, has done something wholly different. 
He said, this is father, this is friend. This is when you run into trouble and you call a parent or a mentor, you call that prized uncle or your grandmother and you go, hey, you've been through this, what do I do? He's a friend that when you go through something tough, you go, I know it's two in the morning, can I come over and talk? And he goes, absolutely. Prayer is personal and provisional. It is always in relationship. And the other thing, the reason it makes us uncomfortable, the reason I think deep down a lot of us don't like to pray, we say we want to, we don't really like to, is prayer exposes our need. Prayer shows us how small we are. Prayer humbles us and prayer shows that we are deeply needy. Jesus centers his prayer on bread, not on saving the universe, not on cosmic domination. Bread, daily bread. His parable is about bread and fish and eggs. These are not far out religious concepts. These are simple staples of life, sustenance and security. Deliver me from evil and can I have a meal? Deliver me from temptation and and can I have some bread? Jesus says, this is how we should pray. This is how we relate to the Father. Simple sustenance and simple security. And what he's saying is you are reliant on something outside of yourself for those two things to exist. And until you recognize it, until you get to the place where you are addressing your Father and going, I would like a meal and can you keep me safe? Then we've created something else. Because our sustenance, our sustainability, and our safety and our security are all tied into God. Prayer roots us in our relationship with God and reminds us of our deep need for God and what he provides. We are so sophisticated. We have everything covered. We got it all figured out. I have an app that tracks everything. There are probably apps that track your home garden if you want them to. They would tell me that the worms were there and I would never have lost the tomatoes if I just would have had the right app. There are apps for everything. We have wearable technology. So something is tracking your sleep at night. It's telling you if you had a good night's sleep or a bad night's sleep. And then something tells you how many steps you got. And can you believe I got 12,000 steps? And then something is tracking your heart rate right now. And if you want it to, you can look at your wrist right now and you're kind of thinking about it because you want to, but you don't want to be the person. 87, why? Okay. And beats per minute. How many beats per minute? What's my heart looking like? What's my steps looking like? You can track everything. We have apps. We're omnipresent as well. I don't know if you know this, but you can open up your phone and hit the button that says news and you can be anywhere in the world in seconds. You can get video from anywhere in the world in seconds. Do we understand what this is? This is our attempt to be God. This is our chance to be omnipresent. I can be anywhere and I can know everything. And God's like, come on, man. You sleep because I keep the world spinning while you dream. You move and you breathe because I lubricate your joints, because I blow breath into your lungs, because I set the beat of your heart. And if I wanted it to end, it would end. You live and breathe. You move because I exist first. God looks at us trying to be omnipresent and omnipotent and trying to get our whole world to be able to be controlled. And God goes, please. Prayer should bring us to that point of deep humility where we recognize that the food on our table is not our doing, that the health of our family or our children is not good karma, that the safety of my home is not related to the good deeds I did yesterday or the rewards for a life that's been well lived. We are in our most basic states. We are in deep poverty, and that's not a bad thing. 
Peterson says it this way. He says, we do not become less needy or less dependent when we pray. We become more needy and more dependent, which is to say more human. I think this is a beautiful concept. We become more of who we were intended to be when we pray in the way that Jesus taught us. We recognize our place in the universe. We recognize who we are in relation to the author of creation. We find ourselves in our most needy, desperate human state. Prayer tears us down to the studs. Prayer takes off all the siding and the facade. I can't fake it in front of God. He knows better. Tears away all of it, and the truth of who I am is laid bare. And so when they say, Jesus, teach us to pray, he says, pray like this, Dad, I need some bread. Dad, I I, I can't guarantee myself a tomorrow. Can you take care of me for today? And then he does this thing at the end, this like little Jesus juke that just blew my mind because I'd never seen it before. And I've read this how many hundreds of times I've read through this part of the Bible and, and taught on this section of the Bible so many times. He, he gives us the standard prayer and then he attaches this parable at the end. We usually preach one or the other, not both, but they're together. It's one story. This is how you would pray. And then here's this other story. Let me tell you about this father who gives good gifts to his children and, and marvel of what's about to happen. Listen to Jesus bring this home. It's all of this talk about bread and fish and basic human needs. And this is how Jesus ends the parable. He says, as broken as you are, you still good gifts, give good gifts to your children. Don't you think the father who loves you will give you the Holy Spirit when you ask. We're talking about bread and fish. We're talking about safety and security. And then Jesus does this thing at the very end to tie the whole thing together. And he goes, don't you think that God would give you the Holy Spirit? What? What is he talking about? We were just talking about bread. And Jesus is saying, do you know what really sustains you? Do you know what really breathes air into your lungs? When you pray the the way you know the prayer Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Do you know what really makes God's names great? It's the Holy Spirit. Do you know what brings his kingdom to come on earth as it is in heaven? It's the Spirit. Do you know what leads us from temptation? What what satisfies all of our needs? What delivers us from evil? It's the Spirit. It's me in your presence doing my work within you. Jesus is saying, as you look back at the Lord's prayer, he says that it is all rooted in the Spirit. And when you ask for the Spirit, he'll give you the Spirit. And all the things you think you need that you listed out, they're all taken care of in the Spirit. Teach us to pray. How will it come to be? How will we get these things? How will you take care of all of that? God, how can you do all of this? And he says, it's the Holy Ghost in you. to walk with you and listen to you, interpret when you don't know what to pray, to translate your tears to the Father in heaven who loves you more than you could ever imagine. That while we were yet enemies, he called us friend. While we were dying, he provided life for us by swapping places and giving his life for us. And then when we said, how will we do this without you, Jesus? Don't go to the cross, Jesus. How will we do it without you? He says, you won't. Because I'm going to leave a teacher and a healer and a friend and a provider and I'm going to call it the Spirit in the presence of God himself. My presence, Jesus says, will be with you and in you to guide you. And so you can have all the apps you want and you can buy what you want and you can have karma and you can have religion, you can have all that. But what you need more than anything is the Spirit. 
What you need more than anything is that belief that drives home that I am not in control, that I am a human being, not a human doing, and that God is here to do all the things if I would simply submit and surrender. God is not there for you. Like your friend or your parent. They're there for you. I'm here for you. God is not there for you. God is in you. God is with you. God never leaves you. The reason Jesus tells this story about a father and a child is because he wants to root us in our identity as children of the father. Our father who art in heaven, hey dad, I need some bread. Would you refuse your child if they ask you for some bread or a fish? No, but he needs us to see ourselves in that way. He needs us to go, I am a child, first and foremost. Prayer puts us back in that place where we say, I cannot accomplish this life on my own. I cannot find my next meal, much less my next breath. I'm just your child. But who would withhold good gifts from their child that they love? It's not simply a story of your poverty. It's a story of your wealth because hidden in the Father, hidden through his spirit is all of the flourishing you've ever asked for. It's the good life that you long for. is the dreams that he's given you to dream. It's all in there. But you have to come to me with your hands empty and open, and then I'll fill them with more than you could ever handle. In prayer, Jesus invites us to go face to face with our need and recognize that every need is met in him alone. It begins with his ghost presence in and around us. And then once we start to grasp the truth that he's laid out here, this crazy truth, this is a wild truth. Once we start to grasp that, it should cause us and compel us to do nothing less than hit our knees, call ourselves children, and pray. Let's do that now. Father, it is astounding to feel your love, to recognize that you see us as children, that you invite us to know you as father and as friend. It is overwhelming Lord, that you have good plans for us, that you have a safe travel for us, that this path is the path you've designed for a reason and for our flourishing. Father, I pray that we would each be able to lean in today to call you Father, to find you as friend, to know that we are your children and though we are desperate in poverty and need, that you are rich and you will supply all of it. So Father, thank you for who you are and who you see us to be. Lift up our prayers in the name of Jesus. Amen.